So, uh, just by way of review, uh, in Isaiah chapter 41, God had you know, said that the nations should meet for judgment. And uh, then he makes that statement of you know, not fearing, O Israel, you know, I'll help you. Your idols are nothing, and I will give you a messenger of good news, was um, you know, sort of a summary to chapter 41 and 42. You know, he gave us that command to examine his servant. We talked about all of the examples uh, in Isaiah chapter 42 that pointed to Jesus, his characteristics, his behavior, and how we should emulate them in our own person. You know, he will bring justice to the nations. And then, you know, that key statement, you know, sing to the Lord a new song. Here, you deaf, the Lord gave Israel as a spoil to those who would, um, you know, serve him. Uh, the uh, wealth and uh, prosperity of Israel would uh, also affect others. In 43, um, here we see that God is going to say that he's with Jacob, regardless of, you know, everything that's gone on. He is the Lord. There's no other Savior. And uh, he's going to do a new thing, he says in the end of this, um, that you have not called upon me. We're going to see the Lord encourage them in a newness of relationship. So in verse 1 of Isaiah 43, it says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob. And that's the two-part creation. He physically, you know, created humanity, Adam and Eve, gave life to the human race. But also, obviously, in the case of Israel or Jacob, you know, the Lord took Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, made him a worshiper, you know, then brought his family line through him, the 12 tribes, created the nation of Israel through uh, Jacob. So you know, that dual understanding, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I like how he says this before <laughs> they're in captivity, before they're in need of redemption. He tells them, I've already paid the price. I've already redeemed you. You know, you take that on the spiritual level of salvation and immediately you probably start thinking of you know, the plan of salvation that was in place before the foundations of the world. God had our salvation, our redemption ready. And there in verse 1, you know, I, I'm your redeemer as he's saying, I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I underlined that, I will be with you. So in the future, you know, future tense, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Um, if you uh, think about uh, the occasion, Daniel chapter 3, Beginning at verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter if there is the case our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. So 
you know, the idea that um, Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them into the fire, and they're essentially saying, you know, we're going to be delivered from you one way or another. Yeah, the fire may kill us, and then we won't have to ever see your ugly face again. Or God will deliver us through the fire. And my goodness, weren't they delivered through the fire? You know, not only did they survive the flames, the, the very ropes that they had been bound with were burned off from them. But the scripture clearly records that their clothes didn't even smell like the smoke from the furnace. That's pretty remarkable, right? When you can be thrown into a fiery trial that's so intense, it consumes those who are throwing you in, you know, burns them up and consumes that which binds you, and you're unscathed. Uh, the Lord making a promise such as this, you know, we often tend to over-spiritualize it and to look at it as, you know, strictly metaphorical. In literal circumstances. Uh, God delivered, you know, certain members of Israel through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went right through the fire. Verse 3, For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I gave Egypt for your ransom. Think of, look at how he words this. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia, Seba, in their place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men to you and people for your life. Now, it, you know there are those that look at this in really strange ways. The straightforward approach is God uses... These nations even that are mentioned here, Ethiopia, uh, Seba, Egypt, against Israel. And, and what happens is because they're so sinful in their process, Egypt, for instance, that when God frees his people out of their midst, there's a tremendous loss that Egypt experiences. You consider how you know, Moses brings them out, and by the time they leave, what, their firstborn are dead. You know, the, everyone in the country is mourning for having had. And what God is saying here is, if a, if a nation is willing to be so ungodly that it would persecute and, and enslave my people, it's literally going to cost them their, they're going to pay the ransom. You want to kidnap my people? You want to hold them as slaves? When the chips are down, you're the one that's going to come away from the circumstance hurt. God is, you know, making that challenge and putting, you know, it forward to these nations. He describes how, as each one comes subsequently, you know, they are being raised up by God, and they convince themselves, "Hey, we've done this. We've made ourselves powerful." And so they begin to treat their neighbors that way, and they begin to go after those that God was going to use, for instance, the Babylonians, to punish Israel. But then the Lord says, oh, because of your cruelty, now you've got to be punished. You've got to be corrected. It's interesting how the Lord wants a fairness and a balance. He uses you know, the righteous fury of those that he right, gives the sword to. 
And yet, when they misconduct themselves, they have to be accountable for that also. God's the one who wants wrath meted out in a very proportionate way. This is why, you know, how astute um, a group of men in the county jail when we were having a Bible study recently, one of them said, you know, I, I, um, I, I find that this seems to be a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament in that, you know, here's the Old Testament at least implying eye for an eye, and here's Jesus in the New Testament saying, turn the other cheek. You know, is this an inconsistency? I, I thought that was, you know, very observant uh, for someone who's lived a life, you know, a non-religious life, to, to look at the Scripture. And then when we looked at, well, no, because even the eye for an eye was God saying that there needs to be restraint in pouring out justice. So someone knocks your tooth out, you can't go to their house, kill their livestock, murder their family, burn their house to the ground. If you're going to exact punishment, it needs to be eye for an eye. Okay, so even the Old Testament, that was the Lord saying there has to be limits. You know, and then in the New Testament, Jesus, all he's doing is going a step further, saying, eh, could, wouldn't it be okay if you got your tooth knocked out? Couldn't you forgive your neighbor? Couldn't you forgive your enemy and pray for them and bless them and do good to them? Couldn't, couldn't you? So it's not a contradiction. You know, when we're seeing here in the Scripture and we're understanding, you know, these nations are going to be punished, it's because God wants his justice to be weighed out in an equitable way, a balanced way. You don't just get to be Ethiopia or Egypt or Babylon and just go stark raving mad on the whole world. Okay, you've risen to the power, you've got the authority, uh, but it doesn't mean you just get to stomp on everybody else's neck. And God is saying if you do, then you're going to be accountable for that. Verse 5, fear not. For I am with you. This is to Israel, God is saying this. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. And of course, you know, the greatest example of what was just said is Israel became a nation again on May 14th, 1948. They were drawn from all over the world. What a miraculous thing to read uh, the accounts of uh, what brought the people back and what drove certain groups back and how others ended up being compelled to return to the land. Just wonderful accounts of, of the Lord's provision and the people's struggle to make them a nation again. I mean, historically, it's, an, it's a, a miraculous thing. There have been many nations throughout history who experienced being conquered by invading forces. And when they are conquered and subdued as a people, especially... <clears throat> I mean, there are various sort of, of occupation that have done a little better, but when we're talking about a complete conquest of a nation's military, 
that their whole political center collapses, that their entire religious center collapses, and they're driven from their land as a people. When those elements are in place, the people that were previous a nation, uh, previously a nation, one generation, one generation outside their homeland, done. You never find them again. No nation ever restores itself from that and comes back. One generation, the very next generation, it's gone. The music, the culture, the language, the religion, the politics, the whole structure's dissolved, it's absorbed into whatever nations they're dispersed amongst. Not so with Israel. 70 AD, as far as the final wave, driven out of the land, dispersed worldwide, stayed out for a little over 1,900 years. Nearly 2,000 years back in the land, just like flip the switch on, everything's back. You know, people want to argue and say, oh no, all of this has changed, all of that's changed. The people, the language, the culture, the religion, the music, the art, the food is intact. Yeah, affected, changed, just like every time they've experienced this crisis with God. They come back scarred. You can't, you can't come back unchanged, you know, but they're back and they're people and they're intact, miraculous. No nation in world history has ever. And honestly, it isn't as though Israel has their act together so well that they're like on the way out the door. They're like, hey, everybody keep the plan. We really got to keep our identity. <laughs> They've just scattered and then when God recollects them, there they are. The miracle is in God's working. The miracle is in God's hand. It's a glorious thing that he's doing. You know, when, when we read this and he's making this proclamation, ah, what a wonderful thing to be able to point at them as a nation. And, you know, the fruitfulness he's talked about and touches on a little bit here. Incredible. You know, third largest producer of food in the world. You know, you've got America and Russia with all of their vast territory that have historically held position number one and position number two. And then you've got Israel, which is basically the size of Rhode Island, which is the third largest producer of food in the world. Like, what? You don't even have the acreage, and you're pulling it off. God's miraculous work. 43 verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. So he's, he's kind of, it doesn't play well into English. It's essentially as it almost appears. You know, bring out the blind people who can see is more you know, bring up the deaf people who can hear. It's a contradictory sort of statement. You know, this this working of the Lord. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant 
whom I have chosen. So he's kind of got two things uh, going on simultaneously here. One is, you know, if you can see and you can hear, then you need to stand up right now and testify to what the Lord has done. And, you know, right now we have those people who live totally in rebellion to the Lord that, you know, would adamantly say, I don't see any miraculous work. I don't see anything that's, you know, of the spiritual. This is just your hocus pocus game that you Christians do to, you know, have something to believe in is sort of the attitude. And I I go right for, you know, the, those examples you've heard me use endless times. The miracle of seeing, the miracle of hearing. You know, and he mentions these two things here. What a remarkable thing. Forgive me for my repetition, but, you know, energy in the light is transmitting through the room. This color spectrum is striking your shirts, John in particular. Uh, it's absorbing everything except for the red spectrum on John's shirt. Everything else is going in. Only the red light is bouncing off. So the light is emitting full spectrum. It's striking John's shirt. Only the red is coming off John's shirt. That's passing through the lens in my eye, being flipped upside down, landing on my retina as you know a light impulse, which is chemically being converted into an electrical signal, which is being conducted back into my brain, which is flipping the picture right side up for me and allowing me to see the fine details of the left. You know, the miracles happening every day. We're, we're walking around and functioning inside the miracle of life and creation. And you got the critics that are going, I just don't see it. <laughs> okay. I just, I mean, I think you're full of it, but. If you don't, how am I going to heal your spiritual eye? I could talk to you about it a lot. And then if I was somehow able to gain your trust and friendship, you might even be able to recite back all the things I'd said about faith and belief in God. And in the end, nothing's happened in your heart. Christ needs to give you vision. Christ needs to give you hearing. You need to be born again. We're dead in our sins without the Lord's work, right? Uh, we need to be faithful servants, deliver this message, preach, share the good news, the gospel with everyone we can. But boy, don't we need the Holy Spirit to go ahead of us. Prepare the hearts. Open the minds. Do the work. You know, yeah, you can scatter seed around all day long. You need that magical combination, right, of warmth and moisture and darkness to create germination, which unlocks the DNA and the seed and begins the growth. And now you got the miracle of life. You know, Jesus saying to Nicodemus, how am I going to explain to you spiritual things? You don't even understand natural things. How am I going to explain to you how something gets born again? The spirit moves and people change. Oh, we so need the Holy Spirit working. I, I think the bigger portion of what's just crushing the work of the church 
is the church is relying on itself. Its plan and its programs and its methodology. And let's just summarize how to do Christianity so we can print a leaflet and send out a bunch of people to do it. Got to have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be God's interactive work with his creation. You know, be my witnesses. That's what he said. You think about, you guys, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. There Jesus says, but you shall receive power. And of course, those of us that have studied know that's the dudamus. It's the dynamite power. This is, I mean, dynamite is some fun stuff. Been able to work around it a few times. It was with Jeff Eastman's blasting, and he drilled just hundreds of holes in the ground all day, and, you know, stuffing plastic explosives, sausage like plastic explosives, down in these holes. You know, when I watched this grown man, burly, huge dude, park his pickup truck behind a concrete building and get on the ground crawl in underneath this truck i'm laying right next to him big bearded burly guy laying there with this clicker in his hand and he puts his head down almost like he's praying and goes click 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 and the whole world goes <laughs> and shakes and that truck came felt like two feet off the ground and boulders came out of the sky that were better than three feet across and snapped off oak trees that were like 18 inches through power explosive overwhelming power when jesus says you shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. That word, witness, is martyr. You're going to be given the explosive power of the Holy Spirit to a degree that you'll be capable of dying for me. It's remarkable what Jesus is saying. Not just here, right? You shall be receive this power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses, martyrs of me in Jerusalem first, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we sit tonight, at the ends of the earth, literally, having been changed by these people and the power that the Lord works in. We need that power to be his witnesses, to share and to talk and to reach out and to affect people. The world around us needs to hear this message. They're actually, they're dying to. So many of them actually want to hear the message. We've got to open our mouths. Again, 43 verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen. And that puts it in a couple of lights. We'll dwell on just what's being said here. But in particular, it's not just the greater vision of all the Christians witnessing together. It's also you. I've chosen you as my particular servant so don't hide in the cluster of christianity be the individual that the lord has called you to be who opens your mouth right 
I, uh, I realized I had done it early on in my walk with the Lord when uh, people around me began to do what I had done. <laughs> people are bringing me individuals and they're saying, tell this person everything you said to me. And you start and the conversation like goes a different direction. The friend who brought you the other person is like, yeah, but what about this part? And they're staring it back off course. And if you pay attention, really what's going on is you as an individual need to learn to be the witness you're wanting me to be right now. <laughs> You've got the message in your heart. you get got the message in your mouth. Say the things that need to be said. You know, a witness for Jesus. You're my witness my servant whom I have chosen, the individual, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Besides me, there's no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. There is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Right? It doesn't matter how much they say they're going to reverse it. Right? There's Voltaire that made that great proclamation. How? Before the end of his lifetime, he would have eradicated Christianity. He would have relegated the Bible to a forgotten book from history. He and his great hatred for God and Christianity was determined that he was going to snuff it out. The Bible would be useless. Christianity would be forgotten. And he passed away. And his estate changed hands and pretty quickly was purchased by a Bible publishing company. And his estate became the largest producer of Bibles in the world. They print Bibles and send them to every continent from the home where he was going to abolish Christianity and be done with the Bible. You know, Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage? Why? Why do they proclaim a thing against God? It's just a foolishness. And people do that. You're going to put down God's curse. Oh, we're going to find a cure for death. It's DNA. That's the problem. This self-healing machine that we live inside should be able to constantly reproduce and heal the body. Why the aging? Why the breakdown? It's a genetic flaw. Got to find the genetic flaw. Eventually, we'll live forever. No, you won't. No, you won't. Won't it be horrible for those poor people to go through the research problem and actually find this is it? This is the broken link right here. We'll be able to repair the DNA. And now we've fixed it. And now we're in the tribulation. Oh, I'm not making it up because it literally says there will be people during that time that will seek 
death and be unable to accomplish it. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to finally heal the entire human race from death? <laughs> Only to discover you've entered the wrath of God. Wow. You're not going to undo God's place. I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm just saying you can't go a step beyond God. What a foolish endeavor to the human race. Just in simply looking at these things. I'll never forget uh, watching a special about the Shroud of Turin and uh, whether it was the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And the summary is we have no way of knowing. But I, I really appreciated one of the scientists who was assigned in the great task of examining this article from history. He was assigned to determine whether the blood, which were there's good amounts of blood on the Shroud of Turin, whether it was human or animal or blood at all. So he's in the process of determining this when he realizes in his own research and studies he may literally be handling the blood that saved the entire world took him quite a while to just back away from that and then process himself through the mechanical steps where he determined not only is it human but what type it was in the whole nine yards so might might possibly be one of the few people in world history that handled you know the very blood of jesus christ remarkable you got to take certain things more seriously. You know, you just get so worn down in routine sometimes. You know, God says something, you're not going to reverse it. He is salvation. Of course, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am salvation. I am the only God. There's no other. I wasn't the early phase of God, and over time we've come to discover that we need God like, you know, 2.0 or a man, God is saying. There isn't any other thing, so don't look for it. And how unfortunate the whole world is trying to find some other God, create some other God. Thus says the Lord, 43 verse 14, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans, who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Mentioning the Chaldeans before their world power. It's so interesting the way God knows the course that history is going to take. Speak of what is to come long before it's ever a concern. You know, that statement, Jesus, Matthew chapter 24, nation will rise against the nation kingdom against kingdom is an explanation that <clears throat> there will be worldwide war in a way you know world war one world war two that those don't compare to what jesus is saying about nation rising against nation kingdom against kingdom in other words there's going to be a sense of the whole world is at war with the whole world all time and have we not gotten there? 
you have no idea where the terror is going to come from next or where it's going to arrive and land upon. It's just amazing where we stand today. Just reading an article two days ago about a number of things that have been thwarted that we knew nothing about. Governments around the world, real stuff, not like shadow conspiracy weirdness, but like real documentations of occasions where, you know, uh, Norway and Russia you know, captured nuclear weapon and dirty bomb material as it was being transported to where it would have been detonated. Pre-9-11. The things that are going on all around us. The world is at war with itself. There are factions and splinters and divisions and hatred and everybody's got an agenda and if they've got the tools, they're doing something about it. It's scary. Much, I mean, you know, most of the young people today do not realize there was a time, you know, just prior to World War II where the United States didn't have a standing army. We didn't have a huge military of men at the ready that were like, okay, <laughs> that's that's why when you're you know watching and reading you know that when these things happened, like you know all of the young men went and enlisted because we didn't really have an army. The the the, the change of how things are today in comparison to where they were not that long ago. It's rapidly approaching, you know, what it is that the Lord is saying he's going to accomplish. Thus says the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send you to Babylon, as we read. Bring them down, down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth chariots and horses, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. The entire Egyptian army drowned, put out, snuffed out. I mean, think about that. You know, when you were standing in a room where a candle had been blown out and it somehow caught just enough air that it has continued to smolder. And it's finally driven you to the place where you're like, oh, that smoking wick. And you just walk over and wet your fingers and go, and put it out. God is saying, remember when Red Sea ripped open and there was a standing wall of water and all of the Egyptian army was inside and it collapsed on them and killed them all. That was a lot like when I put a candle out with my two wet fingers. That's how meaningless the entire Egyptian army was. I just extinguished them like, like that. The world and its disrespect for God. Israel and its disrespect for God. The church and its disrespect for God. It's remarkable. The strength, the power. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do new things. Now it shall spring forth, 
Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, beasts of the field will honor me, jackals and ostrich, because I give waters, the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. You can get stuck in the past and in regret. Because honestly, everything you're looking at in this passage and in Israel's history is just filled with their failures. It's filled with God's victories, too. And what God is saying is, I want you to pay attention to the victories. I want you to pay attention to the work that I have done. I want you to forget about the failures. And I want you to move forward. I want you to do the new thing. I want you to get stuck in the old thing. The past and getting stuck, if we will just let those things go. The other side of that coin is being overly fascinated with the new things. You know, oh, right. So what we need to do is just all the new stuff that you know all the hip modern churches are doing. Yeah, that's our problem. We must do all the cool things. Well, you can become so fascinated with the new things, right? You've got to have that balance. This is a big part of what Jesus was saying. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment or the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse, nor do they put new wine in old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. We need to let go of the old and the past when it is appropriate, and embrace the new when it is appropriate. You do not want to jam the new into the old and tear things apart or vice versa. It has to be a progressive leading of the Holy Spirit. What it is we're looking for, the growth that the Lord is looking for, this you know, river, this waterway that's going to come to the wilderness. You, know, you, you can go through all of the different studies and discover the Lord's you know, going to set up his throne inside Jerusalem and there... Underneath the throne is going to be that fountain of water that's going to flow out of the temple and ultimately all the way to the Dead Sea and heal the Dead Sea and newness of life is going to come to the entire region uh, from that. So there's that sense of the actual new creation that he's predicting and speaking forward of. But you know the idea for the believer and the old, dead, dried out things that need nourishment. We need you know, that living water flowing in our eyes. Well, what are we going to do? Go find a new and exciting way no one's done? or No. We're going to return to the old paths. We're going to go to the old things that the Lord has always refreshed his people from. You know, you, you ask for the water and he refreshes your soul. Right? You don't have to beat it out of the rock. Right? That's been done once and for all. Jesus Christ has 
been abused for our sake to give us his life. And we can now ask and be refreshed. The newness of his life, you know, especially for these Old Testament believers, the newness of Jesus and what he was going to bring. It's a remarkable thing that the Lord is promising. 43.2, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have been weary of me, O Israel. You know, the, the new thing that just, like, you're not going to discover it unless you call upon me. It isn't just going out and finding a new thing. Where are you going to find that which refreshes? Call upon the Lord. But you haven't. You haven't called upon me. E.L. Romaine was um, Chuck Smith's assistant pastor. And, uh, you know, part of that greatest generation, World War II, Marine Corps drill instructor, serious guy. And he had to walk through Romaine's office to get to Chuck's office. And over Romaine's desk was a huge sign that just said huge letters, have you prayed about it? And many times people that were there that he ministered to said they'd go in, want to meet with Chuck, and he'd say, okay, so what do you want to talk to Chuck about? And uh, they quickly would realize you're not going to get past Romaine until you poured your heart out to the man and told him everything that you're ultimately going to tell Chuck. And you'd get all done pouring your heart out, bearing your soul, and he'd just lift his hand up and with his thumb point at the sign that says, have you prayed about it? And he wouldn't say anything. He'd just point at the sign. And if they hesitated at all with answering, he'd just point back out the door. <laughs> if, if you can tell me all your worldly woes and tell me you've truly prayed about it and you've sought the Lord over it and you still need to talk to Chuck, then maybe we can have that conversation. But if you haven't talked to the Lord about it, then you don't get to go in there. Got to, got to go to the Lord. You know, Steve Mays uh, saying that was the best thing that ever happened to him was having somebody that stood in the way and said, no, you got to first go develop your relationship with the Lord. And if you've done that, then you can come back here and develop your relationship with your brother. But the more important relationship is outside that door. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. You know, what a ripoff for someone like me to act like I've got every answer that you need. I mean, we're only human. Our capabilities are extremely limited. Let the Lord be your answer. Go to him. Yeah. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have 
burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquity. You have, have we? They're acting like, oh, to go to God just wears me out. I just don't get anything out of it. God says, really? We want to talk about who's worn out in this relationship? Since I'm the one carrying all of your sins, <laughs> and you don't seem to want to get rid of them, you know, confess them, forsake them, free yourself from them. We're just going to carry them. Okay. God is giving them the opportunity. Yeah, this might sound like a harsh accusation, but put this New Testament clarity on it. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you'll come to me, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've often said that, you know, we put our Bible down and neglect those devotions for a day. And the second day, it's almost condemning to look at your Bible. <laughs> and if you let three days go, then really it starts to become a struggle. And you can go, even sometimes a short distance. I was going to say a long time, but even a short distance. And, you know, it feels like the cover of that book weighs 10,000 pounds. Just to, just to open it up and get your face back. Isn't it amazing how when you finally do that and you just read like that first verse, that's more refreshing than... If You'd spent hours studying, just getting back to the relationship. You know, you're not called upon me, Jacob. You haven't, you know, worn me out. What is it, how is it that we've come to this place where there's this distance? You just come back and get rid of the burden. That's always the invitation of the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament, Yahweh, Jesus, it's the same desire to restore and to atone the relationship. Look at verse 25. Isaiah chapter 43. I, even I, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me therefore i will profane the princes of the sanctuary i will give jacob to curse and israel to reproaches this idea god is you know saying right in the beginning look i'm the one who can remove your sin i am the one who can make it all better isn't it amazing sometimes when you know most of my girls adults women now but get a splinter when they were little and it they really drama queens just 
It was like you were cutting a limb off to get a splinter out of their body. It was just, oh, wow. Just the screaming and the howling. And so, you know, you do that thing where you're like, okay, then you deal with it. And you let go. now it's even worse. Now I'm neglecting them, and they've got this life-threatening injury. Yeah. So you got to go through the process of holding them down, and you just and you take it out, and it's just like so simple. And once it's done, you know they have this whole thing where they have to continue on with the drama because if they don't, then all of that that occurred previously was an act, and surely that can't be the case. So we're done; it's out, and we've got to carry on. I read this, and I see just about the same thing. The Lord is like, I'm the guy that can take care of your problem. Like, if you would just come, we could clear the slate. We could get back to square one. And it wasn't everything good back then. Let's go, Will. Let's just do what needs it. And yet, somehow, we just mangle ourselves. The surrender. The sweet surrender, right? You're either going to throw yourself on that stone and be broken or you can resist until it finally collapses on you and grinds you to powder. What do you want? You know, and over time, if you've been reduced to microscopic particles, you learn, hey, I can just throw myself at this thing and get it over quicker. God is so good. These mediators, all the things that we would have relied upon that have failed us, that's in contrast, of course, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is a perfect mediator. You know, that old description of arriving in court on your judgment day and now your lawyer is talking to the judge and you realize that, you know, it's sort of like sons talking to dad and you realize I don't have a thing to worry about, you know, or maybe it's even a step beyond that where it's so comical that Jesus is both your lawyer and your judge and he's just like going back and forth between arguing with the prosecutor, you know, the devil himself and, you know, commuting your sentence and declaring you innocent and paying your fines and bailing you out. He's doing all the work. The mediator, as far as Jesus being a mediator, you know, all of these other people that want to be the go-betweens between you and God, that want to help you find God, that want to be your minister, quote-unquote. Jesus is so far beyond that as far as what he does in teaching us and in training us. You know, the, those private lessons that every one of us has received where we sort of heard the sermon and heard the message and we sort of know what it is the Lord is saying to us and then we're experiencing it right in our hands, living it out and realizing there, there is no separation you know, church and state, you know, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Christ permeates all. He's right here with me. 
you know, this, this thing that has been filtering and cycling through my heart and my soul and my brain is literally now physically occurring in my life. God's teaching me the lesson physically. That's an amazing moment to realize that this isn't just some thing that uh, we believe. I, this whole thing I went through this winter, just, you know, even being in Israel and being so sick and running into just countless people that have been through really difficult circumstances along those lines and all oh, the similarities and lessons, the similarities and things. You know, people saying, have you read this book? And realize, oh, there's people that have been through every emotion I've been through. <laughs> Had to learn to rely upon the Lord through the process. It's a wonderful thing to know that Christ is with you. You know, then it starts to, you know, verses start to sound different, like, you know, the fellowship of his suffering. You know, where, you know, maybe we thought of it in the past of like, oh, yeah, um, people hated Jesus and people don't like me. So maybe that's the fellowship. And then you really begin to realize, oh, wait, I'm right here in this suffering and Jesus is actually right here with me. This is the fellowship in the suffering. It's not some abstract weird thing. It's literally like a friend that would come visit you while you're in the hospital. Jesus proves to you, no, I'm right here with you. Walking through this with you. What a glorious thing, you know, to have that kind of mediator. Not one that just filed the right things for you in court. And um, here's your bill. If you could just send a check back to us. You know, not that kind of mediator. One who's walking with you through the process. You know, telling you, pick your foot up now. Put your foot down now. Now, slide the other one ahead. Pick that one up and put it you know, walking you through the experience. It's a beautiful thing to have that kind of God that's with you all the way. It's not just, you know, a statue somewhere. It's alive, living, active, right, in the process. So we'll pick up at chapter 44 uh, next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, again, I thank you for your love. I do pray that you be with Anne, her elevated heart rate, and see her through those circumstances. Bless Sheila, Lord, uh, today on her birthday. Minister to her, care for all of her needs. Help these lessons to sink into our heart. We can live with them and live by them. Guide us as your sons and daughters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.